Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, please go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod. And if you get a chance, please like and review the show on iTunes. It really helps us, it boosts us as people are looking for the show. Now today we're very, very pleased to be joined by Barry Shepherd. Barry is going to talk about Winter Natira and Father John Hayes. He's going to talk about some of the other aspects of Catholic social teaching and Catholic action in this early period of the 20th century. Barry, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks very much. We have to thank you as well for having us on your amazing uh, history show on MVTV, History Now. We had us up there before Christmas. Much appreciated. And anyone who has a chance, please check it out on Vimeo. Thanks very much. Yeah, it was good to have you. And then the people in the, the studio were very happy with that particular programme. It was great. Thanks very much. Um, so first I'd like to ask you, um, what is Muinter Natira? So Muinter Natira, and my northern accent, I've been told by some people I'm not pronouncing it right. Muinter Natira were, and still are, they're a, an organisation which in Irish means the people of the land. They began life in the early 1930s and they were basically a, a self-help organisation that were based in part on Catholic social teaching. You know the, the very famous social encyclicals Rerum Novarum in 1891 and then uh, Quadragesimo Anno in 1931 which is brought out uh, in the 40th anniversary of uh, Rerum Novarum. So they were very much an organisation driven by Catholic social teaching. That's not all they were driven by. Uh, there were a lot of um, sort of international influences because John Hayes lived for a time outside of Ireland before he formed Munchen here. And in my current research, I'm researching the, the origins of them outside of Ireland. I'm also researching the um, connections that he made with organisations which, like his, were f- founded on these same principles in countries as far away as Canada, Australia, Vietnam. And some there's some action going on in the likes of Greece and Africa and Italy, things like that there. So it was a very international organisation. What drew you to this topic, Barry? Well, this is the really... This goes back to actually the first article I wrote for The Irish Story on the Rathcarran Gaeltacht. So I was very interested in how... Governments, especially the Fianna Fáil government in the 1930s, used this Brathcairn Gaeltacht supposedly to breathe new life into the Irish language. I've heard that it was also uh, an experiment to um, you know, take people from uneconomic holdings in the west of Ireland and to put them in you know, fertile land, in, uh, farming land in Meath. So the, the, um, the blueprint that they used for the Rathcairn Gaeltacht, it was small acres of land, I think it was like 22 and a half acres, a house and 22 acres for, for small farm tillage. Um, and I, I talked to so many people and they were talking about how this was to do with the Irish language, but I looked at it and, it was all, and especially if you look at Fianna Foyle's um, first, you know, it was like a mini manifesto in 1926. Some of those points were very consistent with the Catholic social teaching that was in Rome Novarum, and it was about establishing as many people on the land as practicable and things like that. 
So that was my first inkling when I was writing it, but I was very much writing it in the context of the Irish language. When I was researching that, and I was in the National Archives in Dublin, and I found this nothing more than a memo that was tacked on to another page, a larger page. And I looked and there was this, this letter uh, for help from an organisation called the Catholic Land Movement of Britain. And it was from a Miss Maddox who was writing to uh, the Irish government, she was writing to the Land Commission, um, saying about the, the Rathcairn um, thing. She said, um, if you would be so kind as to send me on any uh, literature you have or a blueprint of this uh, scheme that you're running, because mm-hmm. we're very much um, wanting to implement that in the part of Britain that she was in the south of England. And I thought, this is, this is really strange, this is really interesting. I've never heard of this group before. So I looked into this group, the Catholic Land Movement, and there was a lot of Irish connections in there, including one of the main people who was uh, Father Vincent McNabb, who was uh, believed in this you know, medieval guild society. But anyway, I was looking at, at, at the, that group, and then I was on, uh, looking through Irish newspapers, and I found a, a speech that was given on behalf of the Catholic Land Movement to Munchentura in their rural weekend. They had this rural weekend where the people come to discuss Catholic social teaching and farming issues and you know really rural issues with like a talking shop. And the the person who it was Mister uh, Harold Robbins, and he the, the the standout line from that was this: uh, the genius of our common philosophy has led widely scattered groups across the globe in the fight against. Capitalism and you know and things like that. I thought this is very you know sort of communistic here, you know. And then I, I delved more into it and found all these organisations who were called you know it was a really lazy reporting you know Catholic communism and things like that. There, so this really you know sparked my interest and in how they interpreted the Rathcarran thing the way I had been thinking about it myself. So it like give a bit of validity to that. So then I delved more into that and then started like looking to mention Atira and mention Atira made connections with these, this Catholic land movement, very, you know, low level things, but still they, they had common objectives and they were called the Back to the Land movement, the, the, the British one. And I looked at a speech John Hayes gave and said, we are not a Back to the Land movement, we are a stay on the land movement. So I thought there was an, an, an very interesting, you know, um, juxtaposition here from you know like a heavily urbanized society in Britain and, and a different one in Ireland. So it's how Ireland is part of a, a wider international kind of movement but let's take it back to, to the start and the founder of the movement uh, John Hayes can you tell us about his background? Yeah John Hayes is a very interesting character uh, he was born in 1887 but he was actually born in a landlady cut his parents and older siblings were evicted in like April 1882 by their landlord, who was uh, Lord Cloncurry, Valentine Lawless was his name. He had lands in Kildare, but he also inherited land in Limerick, Moreau. His was, like I said, born in a landly cut. His family, a number of siblings were born there and died in this hut. So for 12, 13 years, they were based in this makeshift house, which had them centred in one of the, you know, a really famous land league, land war battle. 
So his really he played on this heritage of his, you know, this really special heritage that he was born in this hut. His parents were in the land league, um, and he used this further on in his his career, which I I can get into. But in terms of his origin story, mm-hmm. he was born in the land league hut. He grew up and uh, around the land league in his early life. Him and his brother. His brother ended up. Uh, he was one of them. He was in the IRA in the nineteen twenties, and um, his uh, actually, you know, he became. He, he went to a school in Limerick, and then went to the um, Irish College in Paris, and became a priest. But he's a really, really interesting character. The family are very interesting, but that is where he began, and that was the catalyst for his. Uh, later career, you know, in rural development. Well, how do you think the fact that Hayes is coming from this rural radical background, the land league evictions, hating your landlord, mm-hmm. compared to some of the people in the same sort of milieu of Catholic social teaching? I think it was Father Dennis Fahey. Mm-hmm. He was talking about like the the ideal period in Europe was like the twelfth or thirteenth century where um, before you had the French Revolution and the Protestant Reformation, and it's this very sort of backward-looking, feudalistic, people now knew their place. How does, how does the fact that John Hayes is more tapped into this sort of rural radicalism, how does that influence winter Natira as it grows? Okay, um, that, that, that's very true, that sort of um, thing about medieval guild system. And the person I mentioned before, just what says before going to his, Vincent McNabb, who was born in Port of Ferry in County Down. But he uh, he was very much, you know, wanted to go back in one of his speeches. He goes, you know, um, he, he wants to take society back, not to Crecy or Agincourt, but he wanted to go even further back. Uh, he wanted to go back to Jesus and Nazareth so he was you know that sort of backward thing you find this you know a longing for an idealised past among all these groups to a certain degree um, G.K. Chesterton who was you know one of the main sources of inspiration for that Catholic land movement he said famously the only step forward is the step back so his as well he was very influenced by Chesterton and was really uh, enamoured with this you know this um, the the medieval guilds, but I think that his grounding where it's different is it has to come from this this land war. He's very rooted in that, and he's he's really um, he lionizes people in in who, who took part in the land war, especially Michael David. So my own reading of this and what I've looked at him. He does display some of these themes of going back in time, you know, to an idealised time, but he's very rooted in what has happened in Ireland, and he sees what's happened in the 1930s as people on the land in Ireland haven't really moved that much forward. So rather than... He takes elements of that sort of idealised past but roots it in modern Irish history. What's the relationship between this idea of like agrarian reform and Irish nationalism? For a man like Johnny's. Right, okay, this is very interesting because I've been reading Chesterton's uh, Irish Impressions book, which came out in 1919. Now, to give a bit of context to that, um, Chesterton was, had this, 
socio-economic theory called distributism. And distributism was all about small farm ownership, decentralised capital, uh, tariffs, and even local tariffs, you know, within countries. This really, like, it, it gained a lot of traction among, you know, Catholic converts in, in Britain. And when Hayes was uh, in his first, well, he was in Meath for a while in, as a trainee priest, but his first proper position was in Liverpool. And his original biographer, Stephen Wren, talks about the influence G.K. Chesterton's work had on him. And he bought into what Chesterton was saying, but to bring it back to this land reform, this distributism, Chesterton was actually of the mind that, you know, the, the, the Wyndham Acts, the Balfour Acts, you, you know, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, they were distributism writ large because they allowed, you know, tenants to buy their own, you know, holdings. So he, his argument was that this distributism went sort of hand in hand with Irish nationalism. And I find that very interesting because that's what Hayes was born into. It's a very mainstream view among Irish yeah, yeah, at the time. Yeah, so uh, he's, he writes in such really eccentric and flowery language that it takes you time to play in to see what the, you know, it's very allegorical. Um, but once you get through it, you can see that what he, there's a guy, I, I'm really sorry, I can't remember the guy's name, but he wrote this really interesting paper about Chesterton called uh, G.K. Chesterton, um, England's Irish apologist. But it's very interesting that Chesterton saw the land reform issues that were going on as what he was preaching about distributism. Now, what Munchen and Tira were about wasn't exactly distributism, but it was along those lines of small uh, land, you know, holders and land reform and community development. Well, I think that could take us into as well, like the, as it will become in the future, like the cooperative movement and trying to... Um, form productive economic avenues for people living in uneconomic areas. Absolutely, and when Munchenet here first formed, they formed as a cooperative society, um, but that only lasted up until like 1937, and then the, you know, started you know, going this structure of the guilds, which some of my dad's own cousins were involved in, in Tipperary. It's really, you know, it's really fascinating. This is about, you know, trying to develop a classless society. Um, but the cooperative movement part of Munchen and Tira, I that's something I haven't looked at yet, but I'm, I'm, I am aware of it. Um, Owen Devereux did a, a series of papers on Munchen and Tira, and especially about around that, you know, the early 30s, which was very interesting. What I have... John Hayes, in his speeches and different, uh, you know, papers, he talks about the cooperative movement, the more famous, you know, the Horace Plunkett Cooperative Society. He wasn't a fan of Horace Plunkett, simply because he thought that Horace Plunkett was too involved with the landed class to really understand Irish conditions of Irish smallholders. I mean, when John Hayes was young, in the days of the land war, you know, there was this very simple nationalist story to be told that the land was held by the descendants of Cromwell. You know, Ireland was ruled by England. But by the time Winchester was founded, it was a new context. Yeah, so, you know, the Irish Free State was founded. So, how stood the land question in independent Ireland? Yeah, that's that's the really interesting thing about it. 
is but you know with the time he had you know the the later land acts in the 1930s early 1930s there's a lot of research done and i know alwyn purdue in queens has written about it in the northern context you know the the, the small landholders okay they, they had you know their land they had this you know small piece of land but it was they weren't in any way better off than what they were their lot hadn't really changed that much so what is interesting about the cooperative movement, uh, there were, there's, um, Patrick Doyle has a new book out, and the title of that book is called um, Civilising Rural Ireland. I find that really interesting in the context of John Hayes. He talks about his mission as being saving rural Ireland. So circumstances, yes, have changed. People are uh, own their own homes to a large degree, uh, and, you know, farms, but it, it's, you know, they're, they're not living up to their potential is what, what way I see what he what he thought of it. Well, I think another issue as well we should really talk about, and I presume one that Winter and Atira were very interested in addressing, is emigration from rural mm. Ireland. What was their views on emigration? Well, that's, as I said, you know, they said they were a stay-on-the-land movement. So they wanted to structure rural Ireland in such a way that people had not only jobs but they had things to do so the um the parish hall was a really important thing to do uh, part of their you know um parish plan and what you had you had the munch film club you had you know um, um you know dramatic society and things like that so it was very much community development just to show the you know the potential of community of course you know you know the overriding factors they had no control of really took over and yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you know he was, to a certain extent could have been beating his head against a, a brick wall you know because they hadn't the power to change you know e- economic factors out of their control but you know it was very much about um, community and rural development and showing the positives of what the, 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 the you know rural society was. Well, it's just one more issue as well that I, I think is interesting is that a lot of these movements are not calling on the state to do things. Mm-hmm. They're actually saying the state should be stepping back. Yeah. How does Mwintunatira fit into this in terms of the Irish state at the time? Yeah, um, the, the Catholic social teaching um, element of it, there's, there's definitely this, you know, from the bottom, from the bottom up, you should be looking after themselves. The state should have a minimal role in it. Um, now that doesn't mean to say that they didn't go to the government for financial help. They did, and a lot of times. But I, one in the early part of my research in that, and that, and this is coming up to the emergency. And um, Dad told them if this organisation is to flourish, it has to be volunt- on a voluntary basis. So there were appeals to the government now and again. This is something I'm. It actually is something I want to look at later on and focusing more now on the international aspect of it. But it is, there's definitely, you know, I can't tell the full picture without that. It's just that I'm not too sure of the ins and outs of it, what they received and what they didn't at the minute. But they definitely made appeals to to government for funding. But it was definitely uh, all about sort of self-help and, you know, working from a parish level up rather than relying on too much top-down. Top 
Did, did Richmond here operate in a 32-county basis or just in the free state? No, this is the, the thing that's very interesting is that they tried to um, start something up in, in the north. In 1942, John Hayes travels to Belfast and addresses uh, an assembly crowd in St Mary's Teacher Training College. Um, the contemporary newspaper reports tell of, you know, like a whole spectrum of people um, regardless of a religion or political persuasion, we're all there and they all greeted him so well, sort of well received. And after that, then uh, the, the Young Farmers Clubs of Ulster, a few months later, came down to the Rural Week in 1942. But I, I, in NUIG, in the Hardyman uh, Library, they have the Munchenateer collection and there's a file on Northern Ireland and it's so thin. It just didn't get, just doesn't seem to have gotten around to it. There were there are people who are appealing for them to come up, but it doesn't seem to have, have gotten off the ground. And what year was Munchenate here actually formally founded? Um, they had the first meeting in 1931, mm-hmm. uh, so 1932, it, they sort of really come into existence as a um, cooperative. But th- that, in the context of the time, in 1931 you had Quadrigis in Milano, 1932 of course you had the Eucharistic Congress, and with the Eucharistic Congress, you had this like explosion of Catholic action, Catholic groups who were inspired by various papal social teachings. So Munchenateer sometimes, you know, lumped along with with that you know movement. But Hayes is very careful to disassociate himself with that in a way, being in it but not being in it. Hmm. Why was that? I no. I'm just speculating here. It's because I think personally, it's because of it being rural based, where a lot of these organisations were, you know, like the Legion of Mary and stuff. They're very associated with with Dublin. Mm-hmm. So, but I think because of Munchenateer's mission to save rural Ireland, plus the background where you saw them very much as a successor to the Land League, I think in those ways. This, they were different and, from them. And just one more question about the immediate context then. So 1931 to 32 is a quite tumultuous time mm-hmm. in the, politically in the Free State. It's this, the change of power between civil war rivals of yeah. Fáil taking power for the first time by electoral means. Mm-hmm. How do party politics interplay with Munchenateer? Munchenateer well, very much as much as it could be apolitical. And they basically extended invitations to whoever was in government. So right throughout you see, you know, you've got Costello, you know, coming, you've got De Valera coming, the rural weeks, you've got anyone who's in power coming to this. It's, in, in some way, it's like the, the plan championships today, you know, like people go there basically to win votes. So that's why I think, you know, the, you know, the different uh, politicians are all, all going there. And what was the relationship with other religious groups? Is this like a Catholic organisation for Catholic people? In rural Ireland? No, absolutely not. Uh, John Hayes was at pains to stress that they were a Christian organisation. I'll give you an example. In the 1942 Rural Week that I was saying, and the Young Farmers Clubs of Ulster came to Rural Week, and in Hayes summing up in the Rural Week record, he stresses that you know these groups from different backgrounds came together and lived together in the spirit of Christian harmony. So, and I've heard that some clergy members or other organisations 
criticized his for saying that they were a Christian organization rather than a Catholic organization. Of course, they're you know the, the you know demographics state you know the most of them are Catholic, but there was um, one of the senior um, Munchenitira uh, people, Tony Varley, has written uh, a chapter on him in you know the book Ida Mullins and book on Southern Protestants. And there's a, um, I just can't think of the guy's name at the minute, but he's he's in there, and um, and he was a, a Protestant member mentioned here, so it definitely wasn't just, and I think that validates his point where he's talking about that they were different, they were separate from, um, the cat the, the main Catholic action organisations. In terms of an ideal Ireland, what what would the vision of John Hayes and Munchenitira have been? Would it have been you know something like the the idealised notion of them in De Valera of rural Ireland? Kind of, there's a similarity there, you know, especially in De Valera's 1943 um, St. Patrick's Day address, you know, where he talks about, you know, happy maidens and things like that there. Now, it's definitely not as, you know, quotable as that what John Hayes says, but, you know, he says about the Ireland of our dreams is the Ireland of the past. Mm-hmm. I've, I've read, you know, he said that, that, I think that was in one of his obituaries. But what does that mean? Like, is there serious economic thinking behind that, or is it? I, you know, it's it's hard to. He was very. He was a, sort of very romantic. What I what I see in him, he's like a romantic nationalist, mm-hmm. and that's very interesting because he picks out figures from Ireland's history. The and I think he does it in an emotive way. You know, to generate people's emotions. He he, he references Padraig Pierce quite a lot. And you know it's a. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, in I think it was the nineteen forties, there was the pioneers gathering, and it was in Croke Park, and Hayes addressed that, and who he uh, name checks in that speech. You know, very close together is uh, Archbishop Croke, Archbishop Mannix of Melbourne, Padraig and Willie Pierce. You know, so he's the cultural nationalists, yeah, rather yeah. than land people. Yeah, so he, there is that real element of romantic cultural nationalism. I haven't done enough on the economic side of it yet, mm. but they do seem to be clued in because they had people like John Busted, who was um, a professor of finance UCC, mm. who wrote about the, the world economic crisis in Rerum Novarum. You know, so they have Catholic economic thinkers who come to speak at Rural Week. So th- it's not completely, you know, just you know plucking things out of the air. You know, there are solid theories, no matter what. You know, if you knock those theories or not, they do have theories. I mean, I've talked to some historians who know far more than me about social and economic history of the era, and they say one of the problems is politically it makes sense to to divvy out the land into small plots, mm. which is what a lot of small farmers want. But economically, that makes no sense because yeah. they're, they're not economically viable. Mm. So how does Muchinateria deal with that kind of contradiction? If at all? Yeah, that's, that's, that for me, that's hard to say. Mm. They're, in terms of, I can only tell you in terms of, you know, the Catholic social teaching that's around that. Mm. Um, the realm of arm, there's, I'm not going to be able to quote verbatim, but... Mm. They talk about, you know, how a small plot of land is a man's wages only in another form. So this small piece of land is the, is the blueprint from a, a Catholic social teaching point of view. In terms of how it's, you know, plays out economically, if it's economically viable, that's a whole different question that so far I haven't 
read anything from them that actually addresses that. I'm sure ideally they would have wanted a nation of small farmers. And if you look at, you know, when the Irish press comes along, there's a lot, in the, especially in the first few months, there's a lot of um, articles in that about what the encyclicals teach us about small landowning and things like that there. So it's, it's very much, um, you know, writing on this, you know, political crest that Fianna Fáil brings into the political arena with them when they first come in and in the 1930s. So there's a lot of, you know, they complement each other, what they want, but ultimately, um, I don't think, so far from what I've read, I don't think they had a solid plan on what this should be. And did you notice any sort of anti-urban feeling in the writing that like the cities are places where girls are corrupted and where uh, the housing is unhealthy and all this type of stuff you see? Oh absolutely and again Owen Devereux has written um, on Munchenetier and their anti-urbanism uh, very much uh, a part you know a part of their, their ethos and that, that also goes back to you know cultural nationalism as well you know so there, there are similarities and you can see why certain people would be attracted to that and so in terms of the, the you know the moral issues of it as well so is this the idea that like the towns are remnants of British rule and the true Ireland is in the countryside this kind of idea well yeah um, Hayes actually says that um, rural Ireland is the real Ireland you know but you know what, what is really interesting you know it's the, the talk about they're a parochial organisation, and when people are talking about them being parochial, it's you know almost like thinking that they're small-minded, mm-hmm. but they're they're not. You know, you know they, they go beyond the parish, and Hayes himself goes travels internationally and makes all these connections with organisations across the globe. So, you know, the parish is the base, but you know, in terms of what they want to achieve, I, I think you know pretty much they they had really solid ambitions outside of the nation. Now this very interesting point you were making there Barry about the international connections. What do you think John Hayes took from looking at other movements in different countries and brought back to Winterness here? Okay so that's that you know international exposure starts before he started mentioned here. As I said when he was in um, Liverpool he was very interested by Chester and Fusion distributism. I have to clarify here that Stephen Wren, his biographer, talks about how he was um, really taken with the Distributist League, which wasn't the case because the Distributist League wasn't founded until 1926 and then Hayes was back home. But distributism was being debated around. So he had this you know, idea of distributism, um, which Chesterton and Hilaire Bullock um, you know, popularised. Really a sort of a side point that uh, Ren makes is that Hayes was so taken with um, G.K. Chesterton that he started to dress like him and had a, you know, one of these uh, sword sticks that Chesterton walked about in. But uh, that's, that's by the by. I just find that very interesting. He's influenced, you know, like in a, in a sort of style as, as well as uh, socio-economic theory. But when he was in um, France, there was an organisation, rural French organisation, and I know I'm going to you know, say this wrong, but it's a Semaine Sociale. So it was like a social 
um, organisation in, in the countryside that came together and spoke about you know rural issues and stuff. So and that's very much what he was doing with the Rural Week. So he had that influence there. In terms of other influences, European influences, you had the Belgian Born Bond, um, which was one of these rural development organisations in, in Belgium. So he had these ideas that he was bringing in to mention it here to start with. But if you go back even further, which I th- think is really, really interesting, is that as far back as when he was 13, he displays this knowledge of international um, events. He, when he was in the, the, um, the school in Limerick, he wrote uh, a poem on a critique of uh, Clive's reforms in India. So even from the age of 13, he's displaying an awareness of things that are you know, international mm. affairs. So he's always, you know, internationally minded, and uh, in his in his uh, French diaries, he was like uh, Rin calls him, you know, a notorious rule breaker, you know, in the Irish College in Paris. So they weren't allowed to go, you know, too far from the Irish College in Paris. He went into the French countryside, mm-hmm. and he was walking through a farm in rural France and found this plough that was made in Wexford. So. He, he found out enough about it to come back and give a lecture on Irish, you know, Irish farm machinery, you know, in, in France. So he had all these, you know, ideas of borrowing from, you know, different um, different places, you know, to, 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 to get this thing off the ground. You mentioned Vietnam. Yeah, um, there's um, a priest, there were two priests from Vietnam and one was a father Fong, and this was in the 1950s. Now, he has died in 1957, so this was the early to mid-1950s. These Vietnamese priests came over to the Rural Week and were very interested in, you know, how this blueprint of community development would be, a, you know, a defence against communism. So, you know, you had that there, and you had people in Africa contacting them, trying to get help with, you know, doing something similar in now it wasn't South Africa, but it was. It may have been Nigeria, um, Greece as well. You know, we had all these requests from across the globe to, you know, help implement these things. So we did have a really, really strong international reputation. When you hear all the names that you're mentioning there, like Hilaire Belloc and Chesterton, you sort of assume that this movement must be deeply, deeply reactionary and deferential. Is that a fair criticism, or are people on the wrong end of the stick? Um, with with Chesterton and the likes of Bloch and those Catholic land movement people, no, you know they're very reactionary. Um, Hayes is a com- complicated character. In he's very progressive in some ways, but he's you know he's he's a product of his time. You know he's you know he's born in eighteen eighty seven. How progressive can he be? You know in in, in terms of how we would we would see it, but. He isn't a one-dimensional character who's, you know, sometimes we're used to, you know, thinking of priests as, you know, in, in such a way. He's very surprising in a number of ways how, especially his, um, his love of revolutionary movements in Ireland, which I think is really, really interesting. You know, he's very, you know, taken with uh, the United Irishmen. He's also very taken with Fenianism. Um, and 
I was there's a in Animante, I think is the people encyclical. I, I'm probably pronounced that wrong as well. But that's the people encyclical which is warning against oath bound organizations. So his obviously knows the stuff when it comes to people encyclicals. How does he, you know, square that circle where he's, you know, a, a really, really massive fan of the Fenians? Uh, the, the Irish Republican Brotherhood and of the United Irishmen, you know, secret oath-bound organisations. You know, he's really enamoured with, with Fenian, you know, writing and Fenian poetry and things like that. There. And, you know, Charles J. Kickham's Knock Nagai. You know, that's the really interesting thing about that is that we were talking earlier about growing up with books in the house and stuff like that there. His father had this really Puritan view of reading that it was taken away from your work time. And the only book that they had at home was Knock Nagai, Kickham's Knock Nagai. Which was the idealised vision of a rural... Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's, that, and that book is a, a massive influence on, on him, especially when it comes to the publications, Munchen Atira, uh, release in the 1940s, uh, The Landmark, which was their newspaper. His writes under, under the, the pen name of Phil Lahey, who is a character in Knock Nagai, and the the uh, the section that he writes in the newspaper is called Knock Nagai Corner. Later on, in rural weeks, where they have no sense have dramatic societies, they put on plays of Knock Nagai and things like that. So he is really, you know, it's it is revolutionary Fenianism is interest, but it's also the cultural, um, you know, product of, of Fenianism. Well, I suppose as well as we're talking about like rural weeks and getting interesting speakers and discussing all these ideas, there's also the element of dances and maybe meet the a spouse of these type of things. Like how important was the social aspect to members of the Winter Nature? Yeah, it was a, really was a cornerstone of them and I was actually I, I you know, I was speaking with uh, Katrina Clear earlier today. And she was talking about, you know, women who joined Munchenut here in the 50s and 60s when working conditions, you know, allowed, allowed that. So she was telling me that there was a lot of, you know, uh, single females and married females came into it too. They also had close associations with the women's country, women's movement. Um, and I don't know what went on at these things, how many romances came of it. But there's a very interesting thing that I was reading about John Hayes and this goes back to what you would think about um, priests as these people who are, you know, never, you know, never the man among to meet. At, at, uh, you know, especially in, you know, like that film Jimmy's Hall, we, we have, you know, the, the priest is taking names of, you know, the, the boys and girls who are there. This thing that I was reading about Hayes during the week said that he wasn't like that. He didn't concern himself with boys and girls, men and women meeting at dances. He was much more focused on what could they do together, you know, like to promote the countryside. So, yeah, it's um, he doesn't neatly fall into that sort of thing. When was the peak barrier of Munchenitiri's influence, and, and how did it start to decline in influence? I I think the peak is with John Hayes. Hayes dies in nineteen fifty seven, January nineteen fifty seven. There, in in terms of. It's, it's, really, it's really hard because my study is so focused on his and his influence 
But when you go into the 1960s, they become involved in, you know, um, aspects of community development within the European community. So in terms of their influence, uh, they are attaching themselves to government bodies on a European level. Before Hayes died, he was the chair of an international Catholic refugee committee. So when it was leading up to his death, especially when you get to the mid-50s onwards, all these international connections come really thick and fast. And it's a really fascinating period. And it really gets you, well, I suppose he was, he was 70, you know, when he died. So that's a good long life when you're talking about dying in the mid to late 50s. But what could have happened if he'd have stayed on? Because it just seemed to me that he was really just getting going in the late 1950s. There was a really slow development of mention it here in terms of the international you know, outreach and making connections. That really sort of takes off in the 1950s and then he dies in uh, January 1957. Well, there, maybe I'm being unkind here, is there a bit of a, a one-man band about it? Can it survive? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's no, no, no. There's, there's really are a really a strong um, supporting cast if, if that's the right term it's just that they're not the people that I've been looking at so far so far I've uh, looked at his his family background and all the sort of you know the things that he's been doing he does have a really really good uh, network of people around him especially uh, Tom Fitzgerald who was his secretary and Tom Fitzgerald's still alive um, Tom Fitzgerald I think is, a, is in his 90s now and he was the custodian of all the Munchenatera papers, John Hayes personal papers, which is now in NUIG. And it's, you know, if anybody's interested, you know, that's a really good place to go. Uh, Barry Houlihan there and Geraldine Curtin are, you know, they've been really fantastic in helping me, you know, pull these things out. My research is at a relatively early level. But I've been looking at, you know, aspects of Munchen here and their, you know, international outreach for a couple of years now. So, Barry, what do you think um, Munchen Atira, at the peak of its influence in the 30s, 40s and 50s, tells us about the Ireland of that time? Right. It tells us that there were people who, living in rural Ireland, who were emigrating, who couldn't eke out a, a, you know, a, a comfortable or a fulfilling life on the land. Hayes, very much rooted in the community, rooted in rural Ireland, saw himself as a, and his organisation as, as I've said, a rare incarnation of the Land League, who wanted to reinvigorate the whole community, right? What he, what his memories are of the land war was everybody coming together. So he wanted to replicate that. Their influence, obviously, what they did at. By the 1950s or something, you know, they had late 40s, early 1950s, they had over 400 guilds across Ireland. And that's, you know, you know, you have probably about, say, 10 people per guild. If you have 10 people per guild, you have 400 guilds, you know, you're 4,000 active members. That's a big organisation, a big voluntary organisation. Of course, some of these skills were morning glories. Some of them, you know, faded away very quickly. But Hayes was really on the ball in terms of structural. You look in the, the records that he has about the guilds. What were they doing? How active were they? What can we do to get them reactivated and stuff like that? So he was very much involved in a lot of, you know, planning for the whole 
you know, the, the, where they were, and they were primarily in and around Tipperary, Munster. Some of them were up in Cavan, things like that. There, so some of them were spaced out, but he was very much hands on, seeing what they could do to get, you know, if if a group fell away, what can we do to get them back? Uh, so they were very, you know, influential in that way. But also going back to what he saw uh, their organisation as a bridge to the past. A bridge to the past. He, he very much talks about all these people who were born and died before the Civil War and before, you know, bitterness and splits and things like that. So that's why you, t- you hear him talking about peers, David, people like that, you know, who, who weren't tainted by you know the, the civil war or anything like that there so it was very much of a you know trying to bind society together and in terms of the Ireland of today um, is there any future for this this vision of an idealised rural Ireland do you think I don't I, do you know it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting question and you know uh, you do especially you know we're in a, a, a society that has a lot of immigrants coming into it and you know you see these you know people who have a strong online presence who harp on about the Ireland of the past without really knowing what what it what it was about you know I'm talking about reactionary people who perhaps you know demonize migrants you know so that vision of an idealized Ireland is very abstract it's not something that was rooted in the knowledge that Hayes and the people who founded Munchinatira had. So in terms of is there a place for that Ireland of the past, it's not being recalled or anything in any really positive way, the way that they, you know, tried to do it as a stay on the land, you know, we'll revitalise rural Ireland, things like that. I think the Ireland of the past is being used as a really negative, you know, uh, concept at, at the minute. Um, but but I have to say that Munchinatira still in existence as, but they've very much changed over the years from what you know what they began with. But they're they're still there. So perhaps you know somewhere down the line you know they'll change again. Well, that was brilliant. Thank you very much, Barry. Uh, it was Barry Shepherd talking about Munchinatira and Father John Hayes. If you'd like to listen to this episode or any previous episodes of the show, please go to our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can catch us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or you can visit our Facebook page too, The Irish History Show. Uh, my name is Carl Brennan and as always I'm here with my co-presenter uh, John Dorney. Now if you'd like to check out Barry Shepherd's show, it's on MVTV, it's also up on Vimeo History Now and there's also a lot of uh, Barry's previous articles are up on the Irish Story website. So on behalf of myself and John, thank you very much for joining us.